Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. We thank you, Lord, again for, <clears throat> indeed, the power of your word because of who you are, Lord. Thank you for all that you do, and we pray, indeed, that your word will convict our hearts as we continue our series on the present truth. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take out your study guides. As usual, you'll find the words underlined on the PowerPoint that goes inside the blank. By the way, I forgot to mention a reminder that after the worship service, you're not allowed to leave because we have a fellowship lunch. So please stay around after our worship service for our fellowship lunch. The third installment on our series of present truth and the three angels message by the way um, we still have a few books left so if you have not received a copy of the present truth and the three angels messages uh, see me afterwards we'll try to get you a copy it's one per family we still have a few left if you don't have it because in essence this is uh, your textbook for our sermon series and today we're going to talk about the 1,000 years the 1,000 years uh, by the way you know because it is the first Sabbath of the month, it is Sabbath Evangelism Sabbath, and, and as you know, if you've ever been in an evangelistic campaign, you know that we talk about the thousand years during the evangelistic campaign, but, you know, I found, you know, that when we think about the thousand years, it's not something we hear normally uh, on, you know, Sabbath morning uh, sermons, and so it is part of the present truth, and so we're going to talk about it today, and I'll start by asking you a question, maybe you've thought about this, what will you be doing in heaven? Oh boy, I, listen, I'm leaving. I'm just, I'm hanging up, I'm leaving. She already sur- sur- uh, you know, summarized my sermon. But you know, uh, you think about it, what, what, what is it that we'll be doing there? Because, you know, I, I think the subject of heaven is a deep subject. We can, you know, spend a long time talking about what, we'll, what, what, what heaven will be like, what, what kind of things will be there. I mean, I, I'll tell you what, I just can't wait. How about you? I want to be there. I want to go home, right? But what will we be doing in heaven? Yeah. You know, I remember talking to, uh, I've mentioned my friend Kenzel before because we spent a lot of time together in the ambulance uh, as partners, and so we would talk about spiritual things. And, and I often would tell him uh, how excited, I, I really couldn't wait for Jesus to come because I just wanted to be there in the mansions that he had gone to prepare for me. I just wanted to be here, and, and he didn't share my enthusiasm. In his mind, Heaven was a dull, boring place, you know, and I think that's part of Satan's strategy, right? If he convinces you that, Satan, you know, heaven is a boring place, well, why would I want to go there, right? So heaven is a boring place. It's sort of like, um, I know I'm dating myself here, but uh, when I was little, I, uh, I watched Tom and Jerry, the cartoon Tom and Jerry. So there's Jade saying, yeah, <laughs> Tom, <laughs> Tom and Jerry. Some of you uh, little kids are probably going, what's Tom and Jerry? Well, anyway, Tom and Jerry, the cat and the, and the mouse, right? So, so one of my, I think my favorite episode of Tom and Jerry was uh, one that uh, Tom had a dream that he died. And, and he, he actually went to heaven first and ended up in hell. But on his way to heaven, on his way to heaven, Tom, because this is what heaven was like, Tom was sitting on a cloud, dressed in white, playing the harp. And, and this is the image that a lot of people get about heaven. Okay, well, 
what's there to do there? Okay, I'll dress in white. So, you know, there's nothing to do. I don't want to play the harp for eternity. And so, I, you know, people don't want to be there, you know, because, again, they, they think it's a boring place. But, you know, heaven's going to be a very busy place, especially during the first 1,000 years, 1,000 years. Now, some of you may remember this. How many remember Y2K? The infamous Y2K. Some of you young guys are like, Y2K, what's that? Look it up. Y2K was the biggest news in 1999, especially as we came to the end of that year. Okay? Y2K stands for year 2000, so that's what it stands for. So, so this was a, what we were being fed by the news. When uh, the new year started, the new millennium, all the computers were going to crash. All the computers were going to crash. And that was a, a, you know, there was a concern because even back then, imagine that's been 22 years, isn't it, man? Oh, my goodness gracious. You all getting old. So it, it was a chaos because every, even back then everything worked with computers. So your car had a computer in it, your, your, the electrical grid, you know, worked with computers, your water system, everything. So if, if the computers crashed, it was chaos. Nothing was going to work. Okay? And, and the reason for this, they tell us, is that those that invented computers and everything, the computer programs, it only allowed, they only allowed two digits for the year. So if it was 1999, so the computer would say it's 99, because it only allowed for two. See, they didn't think ahead. They didn't think they would reach, you know, the millennium. So, so they just allowed to two digits. And so the, the, the thought pattern was that since it only allows for two digits, when it became year 2000, the computer would think it's 1900, because it would go down to zero, zero. And of course, computers didn't even exist in 1900. So that's basically what they were, we were told, that computers were going to crash. And I remember we, were we, we always stay up on New Year's Eve. Even the kids were small back then, but, but we always want to watch the ball drop. And, and so we always wait till midnight anyway, even though the new year started at sunset. But, you know, this year it was, it was, it was, there was more interest because I wanted to see what was going to happen. Are the lights going to be going off? And is there going to be chaos in the streets? And, of course, those of you who were there know that the millennium started with out a hitch. But you know, when we think about the millennium, this concept, the starting, saying that a new millennium started uh, uh, had a lot of significance because it had a sort of a futuristic flavor to it. It's like uh, the Jetsons. Some of you know who the Jetsons are. Jay, do you know the Jetsons? Oh, yeah. Of course, you know the Jetsons, right? Yeah? So the Jetsons was, uh, if, you don't, if you little kids, if you don't know what the Jetsons are, you can look it up too. But uh, uh, Hanna-Barbera made the Jetsons, so, uh, just like the Flintstones. So the Flintstones were the Stone Age cartoon, right? The Jetsons were the future. And so there you got the Jetsons, and the robot was Rosie, and she was the maid. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when I thought about the, the new millennium, this is what came to my mind. This thought about the future. We're gonna, our, it's like back to the future. You're flying in cars and, and, and everything. So this is what I thought. It had this futuristic flavor to it. Yeah? A futuristic flavor to it. But now, many people associate the word millennium with the Bible. Yeah. Even though that, that word is not found in the Bible, right? The word millennium is just uh, two Latin words together. It means a thousand years. And, and the Bible does talk about a period of a thousand years. So we find that 
in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. This is in the New King James Version. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? For a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And he, and he set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And you know, like everything in the Bible, as you expect me to say, there is a context to everything. And so for us to understand what's happening here in Revelation chapter 20, we must go to the chapter before it, Revelation 19, because Revelation 19 speaks of the second coming of Jesus. So let's go there, Revelation 19, and in verses 11 through 14. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe uh, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." So, you know, um, when we look at, um, as you read the, the rest of the chapter, Revelation, uh, in verses 17 through 21, uh, the beast, the false prophet, and the rest of the population are, are, are destroyed upon the arrival of Jesus. So, so it, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire in verse 20, and the rest of the, the people, that is those who weren't saved, those who, who, who uh, uh, were wicked, well, they are destroyed by the, uh, the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus in verse 21. And right after that, because remember, there's no chapter divisions in the uh, original uh, manuscripts. Right after that, John describes this angel coming down from heaven in chapter 20, verse 1. And so notice then that it's clear that the events of Revelation 20 take place after the second coming of Jesus. This is, remember, we talked about this last time. We talked about this concept of premillennialism. And we, are, and we Seventh-day Adventists fall in the camp of premillennialism because we believe that Jesus comes before the millennium, as clearly stated in Revelation. Revelation 19, the coming of Jesus, and Revelation 20 talks about the millennium. So the premillennialism, okay? So notice, John sees an angel that takes hold of Satan and binds him for, how long? A thousand years. So the question that many people have is how is Satan bound? What is the nature of his binding? What, what is that going to look like? What is that going to look like? So verse 1, Revelation 20 verse 1 says that the angel has a key and a great chain. And verse 3 says that Satan is thrown into the abyss and locked there. And so the image that he immediately comes to people's mind is that, is that somehow this angel has this chain and he's going to go around Satan and, and, and around with his chain and eventually he's going to get the, a lock and, and lock it there and then he's going to throw him into the abyss because, and, and that he's locked because he can't move because he's tied up with chains. But is this what it means? Is this what it means? Well, in order to understand this binding, we, uh, again, we must read the rest of the passages. So Revelation 20, verse 3, 
Notice says that the purpose really of the, for the binding of Satan is that he could not deceive the nations anymore. So that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. So clearly after the thousand years we're told that he will be released for a little while. Okay. Now after describing the, 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 what the, um, the saints will be doing in heaven during the thousand years. And we're going to get back to that here in a second. Notice Revelation 20 verse 5. Revelation 20 verse 5 says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay? This passage, of course, is referring to those who were killed by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. Those who weren't saved at some point, I mean, they were killed upon the coming of Christ. Well, after the thousand years, clearly they will come back to life. This is the rest of those that are dead. All right? Uh, uh, the wicked, as it were. And then verses 7 and 8, notice, tell us that when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So notice there is a connection between the resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years and the fact that Satan is loosened from his prison. Okay, so this binding of Satan is a, a binding of circumstances. It isn't a literal chain that, that the angel's going to go around and tie him up. No, he's bound by circumstances. What circumstances are those? Well, the righteous are in heaven. Remember, uh, uh, Paul talks about that the dead in Christ rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4, and, and the, the righteous that are living are also taken to the clouds, and they shall be always with the Lord. So Jesus takes us to the place where he has been preparing for us. The wicked are destroyed by the sword of the mouth that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. So that leaves Satan by himself. And what, Satan, what, what does Satan do every day? What is his main job? It's to tempt you to sin. To tempt you to sin. That's what he does. Well, now he has nobody to tempt because everybody's dead. So he's bound by those circumstances, by those circumstances. Notice again, so the binding has to do with Satan not being able to tempt anyone into sinning not tempt anyone into sinning again because everybody else is dead okay now when will be satan loosened from his circumstances when will that happen at the end of at the end of the thousand years at the end of the thousand years that's when he will be loosened now the question is why is he loosened why is he loosened well, again, as we saw earlier, that connection is he's loosened because the wicked are resurrected at the end of the thousand years. And you know, you would think that Satan would have learned his lesson, right? I mean, you have a thousand years to think about what you did, to think about the mess that you have caused, and then maybe at least he would turn around and say, I really messed up. But no, he wastes no time because as soon as the wicked rise, what does he do? He, got, he gathers them to battle. He gathers them to battle. So, Revelation 20, verse 8. So, and this leads, of course, to eventually to his eternal destruction, not only his destruction, but the destruction of the wicked after the judgment. And we're going to come back to that. Before we get there, let's talk about the righteous. Because that's where I want to be. How about you? So what will the righteous... Actually, here they go. Because of the end of the thousand years, the, the, the wicked are resurrected. This is why he's bound 
and Satan wastes no time, and he deceives them into going into battle. So what will the righteous be doing during the thousand years? I want to know that because I, listen, if I've accepted Jesus, what does Jesus do for me? He declares me righteous, right? Righteousness by faith. We talked about that extensively, right? So if you've accepted Jesus, you are righteous. Not because I say so, but because God declared you to be, okay? And so you accepted Jesus, now you're in heaven. What will you be doing during that time? Well, Revelation 20 verse 4 tells us what we will be doing during that time. Notice. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and, the word, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received this mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. And so notice here, the righteous are sitting on thrones. Imagine that. That's got to be a lot of thrones. Right? The righteous will be sitting on thrones. So the righteous will be kings and queens together with the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to that. How about you? Yeah. Reigning together with Jesus. Now, there is a significance to these thrones, though. There's some significance to this throne. Now, in Bible times, uh, the king would judge from his throne. That was the place where he would judge from. Uh, you probably remember the, 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 the best image that comes is Solomon, right? When the two moms, remember the two mothers that were arguing for their, for their kid? And, no, oh, this is my kid, and, no, oh, it's my kid. He said, well, let's cut it in half and give one to each. And so he was making a judgment. He was judging from his throne. This is what a king would do. And there are Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of what? Of judgment scatters with all evil with his eyes. And so there is a connection between the throne and the judgment that a king would do on the throne. But also, there is a throne is a symbol of authority. Authority. The king had authority. And so we will be reigning with Jesus as kings and queens. There is some authority there, and we're going to see why. Revelation 13, 2, this is another example of the connection between uh, the throne and authority. Revelation 13, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his throne and uh, his power, his throne and great authority. So notice the connection there between the throne and authority. Uh, Peter the, uh, once asked Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 19, and Jesus answers the question. Notice Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28. See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus answered, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones doing what? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they will be on the thrones doing judgment. So notice the connection between the thrones and the work of judgment. And, and we know specifically that there will be a judgment in heaven. You may remember the Apostle Paul was writing to the church of Corinth. In chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's writing to the church of Corinth because there was problems in the church of Corinth. 
There was uh, members suing each other. You know, there were some issues taking place there, and they were taking each other to court. And so, of course, they would, uh, they would ask other you know, outside agencies to come into the church to judge these matters. And Paul says, hold on, hold on. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will do what? They will judge the world. And if the, and if the world will be judged by you... Who's he talking to by you, by the church members, right? Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge what? Judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life. So so his, his logic is this. Listen, why are you asking somebody else to come in and judge over these matters? You are going to be judging angels. If you can do that, you certainly can handle these things in the church. But the point is, you notice, even angels will be judged by the righteous. So there you see the connection. There is a judgment in heaven. But then why is there a judgment in heaven? Why is this heavenly judgment even necessary in heaven? I mean, think about it. Wasn't the judgment already done? It was done already, right? Uh, 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 Revelation um, uh, chapter um, 22 verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. So Jesus already comes with his reward with him, and if he comes with his reward with him, he must have done a judgment beforehand to determine who gets the reward. We as Seventh-day Adventists understand that there is a judgment going on right now, don't we? And we're going to talk about this judgment in the next three sessions of our series. We'll focus specifically on the investigative judgment but you know if you if you're i've been in the church for a long time you know that we uh, we understand that in 1844 there's a judgment that started that's taking place right now and that's the judgment that we call the investigative judgment and when jesus finished as a judgment he's going to come and he comes with his reward with him so if there is a judgment going on right now why is there need for a heavenly one huh Why is there a need for a heavenly one? This is what we need to uh, look into today. Well, historically, notice there are three phases of the judgment. This is what a Seventh-day Adventist, we believe. There's three phases to the judgment. You have the investigative phase. You have the sentencing phase. And you also have the execution phase. These are the three phases of the judgment. And by the way, this should not surprise us in any way, because when you think about it, our own judicial system has these three phases. Yeah? Somebody commits a crime, and they're going to uh, take, you're going to have a trial. Well, there is the investigative phase, where all the evidence is collected that's going to be presented in, in the trial. All right? That's the investigative phase. Now, once that part is over, all the evidence is presented, uh, the, the jurors are given time to deliberate, and the jurors will find the person either innocent or guilty. If he finds them guilty, now they, this person needs to be sentenced. And a lot of times they say, okay, you know, uh, you were found guilty, we'll, we'll meet for sentencing next week or something like that. You know, and then that's when they, the judge deliberates and say, all right, this is going to be your penalty. You're going to be in 20 years in jail, or, or, or you're going to be you know, all your life in jail. You're going to pay with your life, the, the sentencing phase. And eventually, the sentence is executed. You see? Eventually, the person is either locked up or the person's life is taken you know, in the electric chair, whatever the case may be, the execution phase. So all these phases, really, we find them in our judicial system. And as we look at judgment in the Bible, these phases are present. These phases are present, okay? 
Now, when we think about judgment, we always think about it in a negative way, right? Because nobody likes to be judged. You know, you, you know if, 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 if I call something to your attention, you may say, Pastor, who are you to judge me, right? Or you will say some, to somebody else, listen, I don't mean to judge you, but, right? We see this as a negative thing, but it's not really a negative thing, at least not all the time, okay? Here in the context of what we're talking about, it's not a negative thing. Now, this word judge, when we think about what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he talked about you shall judge the world, you shall judge the angels. Notice the Greek word that he uses is krino. This word krino means either I decide, I think it good, or it can also mean I pick out or I approve. This is what that word means. The word that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, saying that we will judge the world, all right? Approve, all right? Now, when we go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the word judgment that is used there in verse 4 is the word krima, and this word is a, is a derivative of krino, and among other things, it means to pass sentence, to pass sentence. And so what we can conclude here, friends, is that during the millennium, during the millennium, the saints will approve of Jesus' decision during the investigative judgment and will pass sentence. So what we're doing in heaven is the, that this sentencing phase, this sentencing phase. So it's a judgment in heaven during the 1,000 years is equivalent to the sentencing phase of the judgment because we will be allowed to look at the books and we, uh, because God doesn't do anything in secret. And that's really the point here. He doesn't do anything in secret. Now, again, why is this uh, heavenly judgment necessary? Why does God use the saints to accomplish it? Well, as I said, it's very simple because God does not do anything in secret. God is very transparent. And for the sake of the saints and for the sake of all his creation, he allows us to look in the book to see if we agree with his decisions. Now, you could argue that, well, he's God. Why would we disagree with his decisions? That's not the point. He doesn't want that, that, that there was any remaining doubt in heaven as to how he handled what he handled. Because think about it. You're going to have family members that you love dearly that may not be there. And in the back of your mind, you're going to ask... I don't know, man, because I, I, I really thought that Pastor Nelson would be there, and he's not there. There must be a reason, and so this is why God does. He allows us to look at the books to see the evidence so that there's uh, any doubts that may linger in our minds are cleared up. We approve of Jesus' decision, and then, we, of course, we pass sentence. So the sentencing phase will take us through the end of the thousand years. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for a thousand years doing judgment. You know, obviously we're going to enjoy the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. But a part of what we will be doing there is this work of judgment. The second phase, which is the sentencing phase of the judgment. Okay? Now, again, uh, um, while we will be looking at the lives of those who are not there... It seems clear that we will also be looking at the lives of those who are there. Have you thought about that? Because a lot of times we think, well, you know, uh, we, we were looking, you know, the people that are not lost, we're going to see why they're lost. But there may be some questions about those who are there. Have you thought about that? 
Let me share you a statement from the book, uh, God Cares, A Message of Revelation by C. Mervyn Maxwell. And notice what he says. This is very interesting, but very on, t- on point here. He says that among our greatest surprises upon arriving at the heavenly city, we'll be discovering people there whom we thought would never make it. Other people won't be there that we, would be, that we certainly, well, we thought we were, were certain would be there, okay? Notice, many people may be surprised if we arrive there, yeah? They're functioning in their dual capacity, they will fill uh, uh, a crucial role in the great controversy process. They will confirm, that is the saints, to their eternal satisfaction, how earnestly and patiently God cared for lost sinners. And you, you probably have heard uh, the, the illustration of uh, when Stephen uh, uh, gets to heaven and he sees the Apostle Paul there, right? The Apostle, last time he saw the Apostle Paul, he was there approving of his stoning. He was, he was holding everybody's coats because everybody was being stoned. He knew that Paul was a persecutor of, of Christians. That's the last thing he, he remembers of Paul, and now he sees him there. Well, I don't know, Lord. What's this guy doing here? You may not know all the story about this guy. Let me tell you, Lord, like, like God would know. Well, okay, you have some questions? Here it is. And when he looks at the books, he sees how God, how Paul was converted and became the apostle of the Gentiles and even gave his life for the gospel. So, again, there might be some questions about when, when you get there. Yeah? And so we will be looking. At the end, we will declare that God is just. We will approve his decisions. Now, once this sentencing phase... That, that takes us to the end of the thousand years is over, then that's when the execution phase will, talk, will start. So once the sentencing phase of the judgment is over, the execution or post-millennial phase starts. And that's what we're going to look at now, this judgment that leads to the execution of the wicked. So we see this in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 13. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who sat on it, from whose face the uh, the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to uh, to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up. Uh, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Now, it's one thing uh, that it's important to clarify here is that Revelation 20 is not in a chronological order. Revelation 20 is not in what? It's not in a chronological order. It's important that we understand that because when we look at verses 7 through 8, or 7 through 10, there we read, well, uh, John provides us a snapshot of what happens at the end of the thousand years when the wicked are resurrected, that is called the second resurrection, which causes Satan to be released from his prison of circumstances, and he goes right out to deceive the whole, uh, uh, the, the whole wicked into taking over the new Jerusalem. And then, uh, and then in verse 9, we, we're told that he is destroyed, Right? Then when he went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God uh, of heaven, out of heaven and devoured them. So this is the picture. This is a snapshot that, that John provides us in verses 7 through 10. When we go to verses 11 through 14, he's talking about the judgment. But the point is the judgment must clearly take place before the destruction. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is what happens. He goes back and forth. 
He goes back and forth, okay? All right? Now, it is here where we need to slow down a bit, okay? Because now um, the judgment takes place, and at the end of the judgment, fire comes down from heaven and devours the wicked. Satan and the wicked and sin is done away forever. Amen. Uh, I, I, I only heard a few. Don't you know that the, the, the sinners and sin is going to be destroyed forever? You think that's powerful, but it's going to be destroyed. But here we need to slow down because if you remember our first session of our, of our, of our series, we talked about the importance of the sanctuary in the understanding the everlasting gospel. And you remember that the sanctuary, there were three great acts in the sanctuary service. You had the, the death of the sacrifice. Then you had the transfer of sin from the priest to, uh, to the tabernacle, the ministry of the priest and the transfer of sin. And then the final thing was the removal of sin from the tabernacle. And the removal of sin of the, from the tabernacle occurred when? Somebody say the day of atonement, on a day of atonement. All right, and this is, this is how this is all tied up here, friends. This is how this is all tied up, okay? Now, notice Leviticus. We're going to look at the sanctuary in 1,000 years, how this is tied up. Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 20 to 22. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and all their sins and put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness into the, in, in the care of someone who is appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place and the man shall, be re, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So notice there is a connection here between what happened at the end of the Day of Atonement and what we just read happens at the end of the 1,000 years. Okay? Again, in the Day of Atonement, once the, the, uh, the, the, the goat for, G, for God was, uh, was, was killed and the high priest came into the, host, the most holy place, sprinkled the, 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 the mercy seat with the, with the pure blood, now he comes out uh, uh, symbolically carrying all the sins of Israel that had been accumulated throughout the year and he confesses them, placing them on the scapegoat. There is a symbolic transfer of those sins to the scapegoats. The scapegoat symbolizes who? Satan, the one who is responsible for all the sins. And that goat is taken into the wilderness, and there he eventually dies. This is exactly what happens at the end of the millennium. Okay? Eventually, after the judgment, Satan, who is the one responsible for all the sins, of course, he is in, in the wilderness for this period of a thousand years, but at the end of the thousand years, he dies. Notice... Um, uh, um, what uh, Mrs. White says, notice here, I, I, I forgot to mention this, that the Day of Atonement represents the investigative phase of the judgment. Um, we are, the heavenly judgment is the uh, sentencing phase and afterwards is the execution phase. But I want you to notice this statement here from the Great Controversy, page 45 and 46, because Mrs. White explains it better than I ever can. Notice, as the priest, in removing the sins from the sanctuary confessed them upon the head of the scapegoat, so Christ will place all the sins upon Satan, the originator and instigator of sin. 
the scapegoat bearing the sins of Israel was sent away into a land not inhabited, according to Leviticus 16.22. So Satan, bearing the guilt of all the sins which he has caused the people to commit, will be for a thousand years confined to the earth, which will be then desolate, without inhabitant. And he will at last suffer the full penalty of sin in the fires that shall destroy all the wicked. So you see there, there is that connection between the end of what happened on the Day of Atonement and the thousand years of Revelation and, of course, how it ends at the end when Satan is destroyed. Remember, the, the sanctuary service is an object lesson of the great controversy in the plan of salvation. All of it is important for us to understand what uh, this last day message is all about. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 358, notice what she says there. Thus, in the ministration of the tabernacle and of the temple that afterward took its place, the people were taught each day the great truths relative to Christ's death and ministration. And once each year, their minds were carried forward to the closing events of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, the final purification of the universe from sin and from sinners. Now, now you may wonder, why is the 1,000 years part of this present truth? Remember, we define this present truth as this last day message that God has given and, and, and has given the responsibility to his remnant people to proclaim to the world so that people will be ready to meet Jesus. So why is the 1,000 years part of that? Well, first, because it highlights the three phases of judgment. As I said, these three phases of judgment should not surprise us because even in our own judicial system we find it, but people forget about that. They don't, they don't see the three phases of judgment, and so because they don't understand it, sometimes they question, well, I don't know about what you guys are saying about the judgment in heaven. But if you keep that in mind that there are three phases of judgment, you will fully understand that. So this is one reason why this is part of the present truth. And it also vindicates God about how he handled the problem of sin. Remember, God doesn't do anything in secret, okay? God has to be vindicated because Satan accused him of being unfair. So God will be vindicated at the end of the thousand years of how he handled the sin problem. And it also shows that God is not afraid to show us why he made those decisions. And so this is why this is important a thousand years. Now, it's safe to say, as I mentioned before, that in our first one message, we talked about the fact that Many Christians, because they don't understand the sanctuary message, they do not have a complete understanding of the gospel. They are preaching an incomplete gospel message because they don't understand the sanctuary service. And, and they don't understand the sanctuary service because this is something that was, oh, that's just in the Old Testament. That's just for the Jews, okay? But clearly, friends, it's important that we understand that when we understand the sanctuary message, we also understand what's happening at the end of time in this, in this millennium, okay? We have in the, in the sanctuary service an object lesson of the plan of redemption and the great controversy. And those familiar with it will better understand the gospel and the events relating to the final eradication of sin. So understanding... The 1,000 years of Revelation also reminds us that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and sin will finally be destroyed forever. Somebody should say amen. amen. Because we think that, uh, that, that, that sin is so powerful, but friends, uh, no, no matter how powerful it may seem, it's not going to last forever. 
And, you know, this is where at times, if you really think about it logically, and we're going to talk about the subject of hell in, in, a, in, a, in a sermon here in the future part of the series. But, but I want you to think about this, because if you think, if you believe in an in in eternal hell, where people are burning forever for eternity without end, what you believe then is that sin will not be eradicated. Because if the wicked are burning in hell and Satan is in charge of hell, that must mean that Satan somehow works for God if, if he's in charge of hell. And that means that Satan, since he's in charge of hell, not only he will live forever torturing you, but if you're the wicked, you're being tortured, your life, you, you still are alive forever, and sin will not be eradicated. But the Bible tells us that sin will meet its end. Satan will meet his end, and a thousand years prove that, and this is why this is part of this present truth. This is present truth, friends. You know, ultimately, if we're going to be there, if you're, if you're part of the righteous that are in heaven during the thousand years, doing that judgment, friends, it is only because we have a wonderful Savior that made it possible. That's the only reason why we're there. And friends, if you've made Jesus your Savior and Lord, that's something you can look forward to, to be in there and being with Jesus, reigning with Jesus forever. Amen? Amen. That's what I want to be, and that's, I hope we want to be too. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.